Hey, one quick thing before we get started. I just want to remind you that this podcast is for information, education, and entertainment. It is not a substitute for therapy or therapeutic intervention. If you find yourself in crisis, please visit your local emergency room or contact a crisis hotline. everyone, it's LaShonda from Labors of Love, and you are listening to the Labors of Love podcast. Y'all, I got a special dope guest with me today. He is an end-of-life death doula. I have David Copeland. Hi, David. Hello. How you doing? I'm well. Excited to be here. I am excited for you to be here. So I'm going to start with you like I do all my guests and ask, what is your labor of love? So my labor of love is assisting the dying and the loved ones through the dying process and planning the end of life stages and process of what that looked like for them. Such a fascinating thing and such an invaluable service that you offer to family. So I'm sure we'll talk a lot about what that looks like. But before we talk about what it looks like for you, can you tell us, take us on a little journey. How did this become a passion and a labor of love for you? So it started probably when I was about five or six. That was the first dying person I saw from a deacon at the church I went to. And when we went to go to see him and sing to him, I noticed that he was in, he was there, but he wasn't there. And I call it the in-between. And he was in this in-between phases of listening to us sing, but then he would go back out and then we'll sing again to hear come back. And I said, y'all don't see what I'm saying. So I started doing all of like going to see the sick really early with my great-grandmother, my grandmother, my mother. And from there, I believe I planned my first funeral when I was probably 12 and started to mission inside of nursing homes um, and going to see the sick in the hospital. And I realized that I had a gift to actually serve and help people and try to get things settled so that they didn't have to go through um, a lot of pains and struggles and worries before they die. So thank you for sharing that origin story. And what's, I think the most fascinating to me is, and I don't want to generalize too much. I do want to say that like a lot of this is coming from my own experience and perspectives of what's around me, but I feel like I, I don't know, people are afraid of death. So that's one thing, right? Then you think about a child, you know, I don't often see children trying to be proximate to the dying. Like there is this ominous fear that I just think humanity has about death that I can't say I actually have had. I don't necessarily think I'd sought to be proximate to it, but I also never really was like, oh my God, no, I don't, I don't want to do that. And so what's interesting to me is how at such a young age, you, you, you recognize what you saw, that you saw something different than other people. Were you able to talk to people about that? Were there people who nurtured that in you or did it feel like something you had to kind of keep to yourself? So, no, I didn't talk to people about it, but I did not have to keep it to myself either because I was able to operate at a really young age without like somebody saying, oh no, he's too young to be here. Or he shouldn't come to the funeral. Or he don't. He doesn't need to be this. Or he should be at home with the kids. Because when I would go, I would find something to do and find a service, even if that was cleaning the restroom, even if that was going inside of a kitchen and seeing that the kitchen needed cleaning. I would do that. So it was. I come from a family of, I guess, service, or I want to say servants, but not in the like a lower status service, yeah, yeah. but. I believe in service and whatever that looks like. So 
I didn't have to, I didn't talk about it, but I didn't have to fight to be there. Usually I was asked in, I, I was welcomed in. I did like, David hasn't come to see me. I wonder where David is. And then I w- there's like, oh, I've been waiting for you, even at a young age. Mm-hmm. So it was, and I knew then, and then growing up, you know, now that I do what I do, my family's like, well, you've been doing this your whole life. So mm. we know, we knew that you were going to be something. They thought a preacher or something, not a death doula, but yeah. <laughs> but yeah, so no, I, I can see the overlap. Yeah, it was, <laughs> it was missions inside of the church. And then it was easy. I was the president of the youth choir at around 10 and they're like 16 and 17. And I'm telling these folks what to do, you know? So I was able to maneuver really good at a young age. So there are so many things in there. So as you were talking about it, one, I think I, I really took in and heard what you said about your presence, not being restricted. And I'm taking that in as a parent, as a person who um, still has a lot of control over where my children are and where they aren't, and the narratives and perceptions that I have about what's, what's age appropriate, and how so much of that is not based on anything that's actually true or factual, but based on like the generational things that happen over time, right? And um I don't remember this memory from myself, but the story I've been told, and I believe the first, because I grew up with a lot of old people (laughs) in my life. So I was approximate to death, I feel like a lot as a child, just by sheer age um, of the people in my family um, and illness. And so I told the story of, I think I was three or four years old and, um, a paternal aunt had passed away. And as they were getting ready to close the casket, I stood on a chair and yelled, don't close it. She won't be able to breathe. So that's like this story that, that, that gets told about me. Um, But then I also remember being in about the fourth grade and um, a person proximate to the family. So, you know, in our families, when you a cousin, that could mean you share biology and it, in my family, it probably didn't. Right. Right. So especially my mama said, she was, you know, she didn't have a lot of siblings, but I had a lot of aunties and uncles and cousins. So somehow cousin, but, um, I wouldn't find out till later, but she completed suicide and she was several, maybe four years or so older than me. But I distinctly remember being told in the fourth grade. So I've been about nine that I was too young to go to the funeral. And there are some complexities around this story because um, the cousin that died had also sexually abused me. Now, no one knew that at the time. I I didn't call it sexual abuse at the time. I thought we were playing. I thought we were playmates. But there was this dissonance, this, this tension around recognizing that she had opened up this realm of my world but then she died and I was not allowed to be at her funeral it was confusing to me I didn't understand it was it 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 and it really started I think creating this space of questioning that I didn't even know was questioning so who who can be present at a funeral who who's welcome at death who has the right to do this so it it led to some confusions with me because no one ever told me I was too young to be at an old person's funeral or a person from church people I didn't even know you know knew approximately you know the deacon's cousin who died and we want to show support but here this person was that I was really close to and I couldn't so I think there's a lot of confusion especially for like young people and and stuff around the death process. But what I heard from you was that while you didn't have, you didn't talk about this ex- these experiences a lot with people, you were never denied access and you always found purpose in the spaces that you were in. That's, that's fascinating. And I, I really love that because it gives me now, um, so I want to say the freedom, but also I feel like the challenge to allow my children to have more experiences that I might think are, that are not age appropriate because 
they can find purpose inside of those spaces. So I really do appreciate that. So as you were growing up um, and you said like you would go to sing for those who were sick and dying and you were proximate to it and planning funerals at 11 and all that, how did that evolve as you grew older to the more supporting the family and what does that look like? So I guess when I, so I grew up around a lot of old folks too. And a lot of older women actually were my mentors that taught me how to do things and how to be. And when they started to decline, I would go and sit with them and stay at the night at the hospitals or at the um, hospice centers and things of that nature and the, to give the family a break because I knew that you had been there all day. So now when I come, you can, because they trusted me, you can leave, go do what you need to do. I'll be here. If anything changes, I will call you immediately and you can come back. And that's how I started to learn how to navigate within helping the family with like giving them respite care and they can take a break so that they don't have um, what I guess in hospitals they call it caregivers fatigue. And <laughs> so they don't have those issues so that somebody is there to, that's responsible, that has integrity, that will be able to comfort this dying person and that the dying person trusted and that they knew very, very well that they wouldn't, even if they did slip away while the family members were gone, they weren't alone. They were still loved. They were still, somebody was present. And when I started doing that within my family, then folks was like, cause I wouldn't tell people I was coming over. I would just pop up at the hospital and just pop up. You can leave. Are you sure? Yes. And then they would say, well, David came. It would, it would call, you know, David came and gave me a break. He was there for 12 hours. I got to go home and get some sleep. And then they, I, I would spend the night. David spent the night or brought food, you know, just these simple things I noticed that was lacking inside of being in certain people's families. And I tell people like I work in the in-between. So when I'm in somebody's family, I see what's missing. And I try to not to fill those gaps and those voids and to be sure that kind of everything is being taken care of. So even if it's a baby that needs a diaper change, I hate changing babies. But <laughs> I do not like uh, <laughs> diapers. <laughs> I'm with you. And I just don't like it. But when someone's grandmother, mother's passing, who holds the child? Me or them when they're um, not able to be consoled and then the baby's crying. So now I have to see who needs to get out of the room. So I'm learning all of these things while being with my family and being present and taking note on how it should look and what was smooth this time, what wasn't smooth that time. And it just went around. David came. So then one of my cousins, when she got sick, she said, I'm, I'm dying. I want you there with me. And she told her families, her immediate family, because she was my grandmother's first cousin. Mm -hmm. So she told her immediate family, she had no children and stuff. And I'm like, I'll be there. So then me being there was a thing and then somebody else got sick. You coming to see me? I'm, you know, so that's how I became to be doing like death work. I never called myself a doula until recently mm -hmm. to get into different spaces, but so yeah. that's how it evolved into helping the family and learning how to have steps that we should take to make it go smoothly. Mm -hmm. I have like goosebumps and I feel emotional all at the same time. Because it, it is just such a beautiful, I, I want to say service, and it is service. So yes, a beautiful yes. service. But I don't mean that in the sense of, you know, paid service. No, it is a beautiful contribution that you are making to the world, to families. You know, I was listening to you talk, and I was thinking about um, proximate death, right? I've been around a lot of dying people, but you know, there have only been like really a couple that have been extremely close to me relationally. My father died um, in 2006 and I was in my early 20s. And, um, I, you know, I do. I share the story that 
neither my mother nor I shed a tear because we were being strong for each other. It breaks my heart now that we were not resourced enough to be able to be our full authentic selves and grieve together, knowing that there is strength and power and resilience in that grief process, instead of this old narrative of the black woman being strong. So that's one thing, but um, I thought about that. Um, And then I thought about when my mother-in-law passed away and all of the ways that she wrapped support around us in in her dying time. So we had anticipatory grief sessions with her to go through the grieving process together and contrasting that with me and my mama not not grieving at all (laughs) it was years after my father died that I realized it wasn't until I really started this work and recognized how grief shows up with so many other people that I realized I never grieved my father's dying and then here I was given an opportunity to grieve ongoing throughout the dying process not just over a casket so that that was that was so enlightening and the fact that you come in and I thought about um how with particularly with my dad that you know there were a few people who were close to me and close to my mom who were there with us adding that support um are you okay and things like that not coming to stay with him and stuff, but then all the chicken slash support that rolled in. (laughs) That's what I bring. (laughs) As soon as the body was cold, right? And then that lasted from death to funeral. And then it trickled. And then it was non-existent. And don't get me wrong. I know my mother has some really close people and, and her church family was very supportive. Um, I lived out of state and it felt like that went immediately away the moment I drove out of Detroit. But to think of a person who was going to come and one of the things that you do, I'm sure is intentional, but I want to name is probably, I think the most impactful thing that you do is you just do. Probably one of the more difficult things is when someone asks an actively grieving person, what do you need? How can I help? And I know the well intentions of it. I'm sure I have done it. We got to, I don't know. <laughs> I, I am with my loved one who's the, I don't know. And so I love that you don't call to say I'm coming because you know, people get all, well, let me, let me straighten up and let me, nope, you just pop up and, and you say up. go. Uh-huh. And you take <laughs> all of that, having to figure out what I need out of it. You're actually telling people what they need. You can go rest eat and do all of those things. So that is beautiful. It also reminds me of, you know, when my father did die, he, he went into ICU and I immediately went there and I was there with him for, um, a week and he started to get better. Um, and then I, I had to come back home with the intention of coming back. My mom was one of those people who were there all the time, but she was also kind of surrounded by people who I don't do hospitals. Like, I, I don't know, who wants to do hospital, but okay. So I don't, she, you know, and part of it is, I know she chose to stay, but you know, I, I, I do wonder what it had, what would it have been like to have had a David in our lives? Because when my mother was finally convinced, this is not sustainable. You have to eat. When she left to eat is when my father passed away. And we are like totally intentional, right? I, I don't, I know he did not, he, stubborn I, I it's a lot of him in me I'm not about to sit here and die with you sitting right here so you can know go and so it was very it felt very on par for who yeah. he was but the the thought of a David in our lives to to have been in that gap space fills me with just a sense of like wow you are out here doing this for people and that 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 fills me with this very warm, um, trying to think of other sensory words. You can see me, my listeners can't. I'm moving (laughs) my fingers and shaking my head, but I just, it feels amazing knowing that in a process that has so much stigma around it, like death, that you are willingly moving into those spaces to create family and continuity and comfort 
and safety during those times. So now that this is the work that you do and it has grown outside of like your family, how do people who are looking for this service seek (laughs) this service? What does that look like? So you can go for me, for me, you can go to um, david.cope at lwrdoula.com. Or you can go on any other, you can put in www.deathdoulas.com and then folks should come up. And I will be on most of those um, channels as well. But it depends on the type of doula you want. So it's almost, it's almost like I think a therapist to a certain degree. Have, you have to see this this person work with me because some families I don't take. Even in like hospice, I won't go to certain areas. I, I won't, when I hear certain things, I'm like, oh, I'm not supposed to be in this space. And it's not going to be appropriate for me to be here. So um, it's almost just, you know, you haven't, most of us have free consultations and you get to ask questions. I ask a bunch of questions for that free 30 minutes. So I can know if I can serve you to the best of my ability. And then you ask questions to that doula as well and ask them those tough questions. What do they believe? Do they have in hell, religion, all of these things that you're gonna need to know. Are they gonna come if they die or are they not gonna come? Sometimes some of them just talk you through the phone and that's it. Some of them are in person, I'm more hands-on. So I'm more than likely present in most cases. I even spend the night in homes. Some folks won't. So you have all of those different type of work that folks do. And I am like, I don't do grief well because I don't grieve like most people grieve. So when it comes down to post-death, I do come back, sit with the family, but I, I'm just watching to see if the house is clean or if you're doing, starting normal things or if you're trying to act okay. You know, or if you're dealing well, then if you're not, I'm going to have to recommend you to someone to help you through the grieving process because that's not my lot. My lot is completely different than that. So it, it really just depends. But in most cases, most doulas that I know our servants, and we do our best to meet the needs of each person that we decide to take on. Yeah. So you may have already, you've already started to answer this for me, but well, before I ask the question, I love the distinction. There is something very powerful to me when someone can name precisely what they do and tell you where their parameters and boundaries are. Because we as people, I don't think we intentionally push against people's boundaries as often as we just don't know. So if you say, I do death work, I think there is a possibility that people will make up whatever that means in their mind and then try to project what they need or want onto you. What I hear you saying is the grief specific work with the family, that that's, that's not my lane, <laughs> my lot, nor my ministry, but I got some referrals for you, right? right? There are people who do that and I do this. Um, So what would be some of the primary differences between you as a death doula and let's say a hospice worker who comes in, you know, at the very end stages and are there differences? So I come in, I like to come in as early as I can because that way when the dying person is able to speak, I need them to let me know who's going to speak for them when they can no longer speak Mm. because when they can't speak, I can only advocate. I don't make decisions. So then when you have a family member come in from out of town that hasn't been there in 20 years, say, this is my sister and this is what she wanted. That person that is advocating for you because you can no longer speak needs to advocate. So now I'm talking to that person like, well, this is what she said she wanted. Do you want me to speak with this person that's here to try to have this conversation 
of trying to be peaceful and all of these things and try to work out whatever this situation is that she's coming up here with? Or do you want me to be quiet? Because I'm only advocating. So with the hospice, they don't get inside of the family the way I'm inside of the family. Gotcha. I get to learn who actually doesn't like who. I ask families, who is going to be the problem when it's all set? When shit hit the fan, and I, I'm, I cuss a lot. You, it's okay. We, okay. I lo- and when I love shit, when people do it. They draw it, and then they be the like, can fan. I say that? You said it. Go ahead. When shit hits the fan. I need to know who I'm going to actually have to end up checking. Because literally, I am going to have to do that. I'm going to have to say, this is not what they wanted. And you need to leave the room because this is a safe space, especially mm. inside of, you know, the, um, the room that the person is dying in. You, we need to leave out of this room and then you all need to go and talk this out. So these are things that I'm learning and asking. With hospice, they're in for like comfort care, social work, all of other resources that I'm not able to provide, but able to like refer. This is what hospice is going to do. Me, I'm doing all the outside things that hospice is not able to do. Like the nurse is saying, you're giving her too much medicine. The nurse is probably not going to be like, no, I'm giving the right amount of medicine. That's going to be like, well, so now I'm there to ask the nurse, okay, so what does this medicine do? And why is she getting this amount? So that they can understand what's really going on. Because yes, she's going to sleep. But she needs to be, her pain needs to be managed. Mm -hmm. If she doesn't get medicine, she's going to be in pain. Mm -hmm. So this is what I'm usually doing to work in what I call the in-between to navigate those spaces for the family. Are they scared? Like Black folks don't like to talk to nurses or doctors for real. They talk to me. So then I'm listening and I'm like, okay, when the nurse comes in, so hey, such and such. They want to know about what the next stages look like for this condition because they said she's having bad bowel movements or things that you know all of these things they're not going to sometimes vocalize that because some of them are older especially older generation older black folks don't really communicate well to the other persuasion like my great-grandmother she did not she held her head down a lot and didn't look white folks in the eye which makes sense uh, based on when she was you know, born so and her she's from Sam, Alabama. come on so you know, so then her kids and generations after that, you know, now we're more vocal. So I'm looking at those characteristics and things that I know that happens in our families. I'm like, okay, so she's not going to advocate for her. So let me go ahead and talk with the hospice nurse or the doctor so that we could really get an understanding on what's next for these processes. So that's really the difference is I can do certain things that the social worker cannot say. I can cuss at a family member. The social worker cannot. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I can do a lot of different things that hospice volunteers and hospice workers are not really able to do because, well, I work for myself. And also I've built a relationship with the family and I come in saying, this is who I am. This is how I am going to be. And, you know, this is, I had a lady tell me, be kind to my mother. She's not dying, but she's sickly right now. But she told me, she said, when I go, be kind to my mother. Because she know that her mama is a piece of work. Mm -hmm, (laughs) mm -hmm. So I said to um, her niece, I said, well, when she goes, if her mother comes in and wants to take control, I have to be kind to her mother. So whatever happens, she asks me. So I'm advocating for the dying. Yeah. Be kind to my mom. No matter if she changes the whole plans, hmm. she's going to let her mother do whatever she did it. And, and while she's alive, her mother tells her what to do. When she's dead, her mother's still going to tell her what to do. Mm-hmm. And I know this. Mm-hmm. So I have to be that. I appreciate the. Um, the pretty neutral and non-judgmental way to approach that. Right. To call yourself an advocate for the dying helped me really understand what that is. It it reminds me in some ways of, if you're familiar with guardian ad litems, they are court-appointed, often lawyers. I don't think you have to be a lawyer. They're a court-appointed person um, whose job is to 
advocate for the best interest of a child. So let's say a family, a couple's getting divorced and children are in the middle of that. A guardian ad litem might be assigned to this family specifically to say with everything that's going on, my job is to make sure that I understand what the best interest of the child is and to advocate for that. And so, you know, this feels like another form of I'm advocating for this person and what they want is what I'm going to make sure they get, regardless if, (laughs) you know, I like mama or not, this is what I've been asked to do. Um, That distinction between um, hospice worker, volunteer, and the role you play makes so much sense to me. Um, I think there are clear parameters and, and boundaries and guidelines that a social worker, for example, can do, say, and move into that space. What I envision as you talk about your work, David, is you become part of a family. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like it, it, you, you don't, you're not a service provider who comes and is an outsider, us, them, you embed yourself into the family and you become part of that family with a clear goal to advocate for the dying person, but also, you know, to look around and go, oh, let me go ahead and clean that real quick. Oh, this looks like this is because all of those things impact the family, but they, their focus isn't on that right now. And I think those are very understated um, things that people do. And when I have some people in my life who are very service oriented. And what I have always admired about them is one, the ones I'm thinking about want no parts of being a face of anything, in front of anything, being, being they don't have to be seen. And it, as a matter of fact, they are stealthy. It's like, you look up and be like, when did this get done? And that person in Benny and done the thing and left you don't even see or hear them, but it's done. And they don't come ringing a bell saying, I'm here. I'm gonna do this for you. I want you to know. No, they come in, they do the thing and they leave. And I'm getting the, the sense that that's, that's how you kind of move into this family. Sometimes like you've been there your whole life, even though you're entering into some of these families in a very present now situation is my assessment accurate you're actually true because i hate being in front (laughs) don't put me on the obituary don't say nothing about me i'm here i did it that's it i love you i support you and if you need anything outside of this i'm available i'm reachable you know so that's true i become a part of the family and i still check in Mm-hmm. And I still go back every so often just to make sure that everybody is kind of doing all right. And I love that. Yeah. No, I love that. So here's where I see the work we do. Um, I, I don't know if overlapping is the right word, but here's where I see the connection. It is not uncommon for me to get a family coming to therapy after someone dies because shit hit the fan things get messy um and often the way I look at it is um there are some families who have spent their whole lives with their back against a door and feet pushed into the ground holding a whole bunch of trauma pain and hurt inside of a closet and their entire existence is making sure it doesn't come out And one of the people who was the primary person keeping that door closed or patting down the rug, they were sweeping everything under when they die. Doors fly open, rugs come up. And all of a sudden there is no, um, there's no muscle built to manage conflict. There is no practice in having open, honest, transparent conversations. So everyone is kind of looped into the survival technique that they've learned within their family and this disruption. So I would love, this happens way more than I know I see the clients for. And there was a part of me, there is still a part of me that is very interested in this specific line of work. what I have been able to do a couple of times for a couple of special people is take their oral history as they were dying. So they both happen to be uh, 
people dying from cancer. And I was able over a period of multiple sessions to record their life story, as well as finishing with like, what messages would you like to leave for your loved ones? And the interesting thing about doing that is you learn so much about the family. So as I am taking this person's oral history, I get to know the family through their lens. And then when I am then able to do grief and trauma work, because I'm not a grief worker either. I want to be clear. I recognize that grief is a component of trauma, but I'm a trauma worker. But what gets unearthed oftentimes is the trauma the generational trauma and the intergenerational trauma that gets upended. And I do love sitting in that space with those families to be able to bring voice and truth in ways that they've never been able to say the thing. I'm able to call the thing out and let it sit, do the body work that goes with it. And, and I, I love doing that work. And so, and, and in some ways I do become part of the family, but it's still a very, therapeutic space but I can see that that link between me being that person you like okay great y'all need to go see her (laughs) right exactly (laughs) because whoo this is all coming up and now that I have done my advocacy I should probably figure that out so obviously without even before then because in end of life planning and they start talking about wills and testaments and stuff no this is like even before then I'm like that's not my lane yeah I need to go and work this out even through the dying process so that when she is or whoever is gone you will be able to to cope and go and you know and be able to grow and heal well so that it's not a it you're able not to have all these arguments and stuff about the funeral and after the funeral I think that stuff needs to be done immediately (laughs) yeah yeah like at one point I was like I I wonder what it would look like to collaborate with like a funeral home so that people can get this because it's like I I have seen knockout drag outs over an obituary planning what we gonna put in there what we not gonna put in there we ain't about to put that I mean and it's like okay this is a symptom in all of the buried things so how, how do you take care of yourself, particularly around the messiness and the, the contention uh, that can sometimes be present. What do you do to resource yourself? So people ask me that all of the time. And I think, so like, for, like now I'm away and I came up and did my um, little thing I needed to do, but that was one day. I've been here for well, two days, but I've been here since Thursday, out of town. I'm away from everybody. I don't have to be present for anyone. I don't have to show up for anyone. I can sit in this hotel room and lay in the bed all day. I don't have to. This is how I cope. I lay back and I just relax. I don't, if I don't want to answer the phone, I don't have to answer the phone. My phone is never on silent though, ever. I keep it because if somebody is dying or something, I have to answer the phone for the, depending on if I know, I got, I wouldn't have left if I had, if I was working with someone, I would have mm-hmm. waited until they had slipped away. But like now my family knows I'm out of town. So they're not calling me with certain situations. The families I've been working with, if it's not that important, they're like, he's, I'm not able to get there. I'm five hours away. So when I know I need a break from people, I need a break from dealing with um, a hard family or a challenging client. Once that's done, I pack up, I find me a hotel and I chill. Yes, Uh, recharge is what I call that. You gotta be able to recharge that battery. David, I am so grateful to the contributions you make to the world, to this earth. I really am and I'm so grateful that families have you and other doulas to to be with them throughout the process that can be that again I think is very stigmatized I think 
our perceptions and what uh, what we think about death and the fear we have around it um, really can be a hindrance to the process of a, a smooth, comforting transition for people who are dying. Um, and so I love that they have you. Is there anything that I didn't ask or we didn't get a chance to talk about today that you really want to share with my listeners about the work that you do personally, but just death or death dueling um, in general? So mostly in Black families, we don't tell our families members when we're sick. And I see it too often because uh-huh. they're thinking they are protecting us. They don't want to be a burden. They don't want to make their low yours. And it's really important to have conversations surrounding death. Like anybody that knows me, I talk about death all the time. My obituary has been made since I was 16. All they have to do is put a picture on it. Mine's done too, by the way. You know, so it's done. I could, I, those are things that I know people are going to want to figure out. Mine's is in first person. And it starts, I guess I must be dead. Like literally. I love it. <laughs> so um, I know somebody's probably going to change it though. Because my, my friends are like, no, that's tacky. But, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, those are, you know, have these conversations surrounding death and what that looks like. My grandmother, she's 80, but she, she will be 80. And she's scared to die. I've picked up on it these this these past couple of months. She's been in the hospital a couple of times. And I'm like, well, honey, you're 80 years old. You've lived a, a, a good life. Not a, you know, it's still not saying she's gonna die anytime soon, but she's had triple bypass surgery. She's had three heart attacks. Um, she still smokes cigarettes. So, you know, and but she's scared to die. So now I'm because her obituary is made too, she doesn't know that. So now I'm figuring out inside of me on how to have these conversations with her to try to figure out what that is, that fear of death looks is for her because her mother lived to be 91 and she can still walk well. She still touch her toes and stuff like that, but she is, she sneezed wrong. Oh, I might have to go to the doctor. <laughs> I'm like, mm, no, it's just old age and it's okay. You know, so I think that having discussions around death and dying when you're sick, when you do get that notice from the doctor saying you have cancer, because she's having things with her kidneys. And I went to, you know, I wanted to know. I said, let me come and see what the doctor's saying, because you're not telling everything. So I need to know for myself. (laughs) So, like, go to these appointments and tell your family members preparation is protection. You are not protecting your family by not preparing them because then they have nothing to stand on. If you have a doula come in and they don't have to do what I do. They can come in and just help you get stuff in order and say, this is what I want, plan the obituary and all of these stuff. They don't have to come in and be a part of your family. But when they come in, you could get certain things done to where your family doesn't have to even worry about what you want to wear because you picked out what you want to wear. They don't have to worry about is the life insurance good because you have somebody that has called and made sure everything because a lot of like my great grandmother, she outlived hers. We didn't know that. Good thing she had money and then she worked for Jews. So then the Jews actually took care of everything. They said, we're going to take care of it. But, you know, we didn't know this and we didn't have these conversations. And then me being the great grandson, I really didn't have a right to kind of ask certain stuff because she had children, which were my grandmother, you know, and they didn't ask these questions. So then now I'm learning that, no, I need to ask these questions. So now I'm asking my grandmother, so what's this? What's that? Asking the kids, do you all have a life insurance policy on her? What do you want to wear? So these are things that I believe that folks should really talk about and have an order that way when you do slip away it's a bit easier it's not so hard they're able to actually grieve without trying to do what they believe is best for you you make those decisions of what is best for you so that's a word like almost I envision a little silver offering plate going around (laughs) it's true And the last thing is, 
because I I'm do a lot of I am working in LGBTQ plus a community and all this stuff. And I am seeing last year, two years ago, one of the trans girls died and she was misgendered in her casket. Mm. And it was an episodic church. And none of the community was really able to come because her family had folks at the door and she was putting the casket as her dead name. So it's important that queer people, especially of color and, and especially trans people, have certain documents in place so that your maid families can take care of you, not your next to kin, because your next to kin can harm you even in death. Hmm. they can disrespect you even during your death. And, and I didn't know that um, this young lady was sick because it was during COVID. So we didn't see each other. And then it popped up, R-I-H, this person. And I'm like, no. So now I'm figuring like, well, was everything in order? It was not in order. And she did have a, um, in our culture, we say gay daddy, gay mama, who could have, buried her but her body was given to her parents i was able to go to the funeral because they um know me from like the church i came from by the way so they i should be the exception to the rule let's put it that way yeah. and most times i'm the exception and that's not fair mm -hmm. because they know i do certain work they've seen me in certain churches even though i live completely out loud gay happy proud but I'm the exception to the rule. When I come in, I'm not disrespected in most cases. And if queer people have certain things in order and documents in order, they're able to maintain their dignity. They're able to be respected. And that's really one of the main things that I believe should, is very essential for Black queer folks, or queer folks in general, or people in general, but some folks have to go through misgendering. You know, right. so I don't have to deal with that. Mm -hmm. And I do have a representative of disposition, which is my sister. And it doesn't cost money to have these things done. It only, it, in Ohio, it's only a notary. That's it. And witnesses or whatever. So if you get those things, you'll, you'll be able to control death, which is uncontrollable. You have control over even though we don't know when, we don't know where, we don't know how, but there's some control that you can have over your body, over your wishes, even though it's going to happen in, well, in most cases, an uncontrollable state. Yes, such an excellent point. You know, I think about, and how awful, I'm so sorry for your friend that was misgendered in their casket, but also how, one thing I've seen is, how people um, how people are listed in the obituary special friend special friend lifelong friend lifelong special friend you know what i mean special friends and minds though so. <laughs> so you know it's 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 one of those and if that is how the dying dead person wants to that's fine but it gets real traumatic around this time and so I love that point just actually knowing that there is somebody out there who can point someone to resources of here is what you need you don't have to pay for this find a notary like knowing that there are protections when you say what did you say preparation is protection yes oh we that that needs to be a t-shirt a bumper sticker um and play yes and and just how many like i i could go so anecdotal right now and i won't because we're finishing up but the number of times that um people have their their hurt and their trauma has been exacerbated because one person thought they were protecting by withholding i've had it happen in my life multiple times i found out my grandma died on facebook uh <laughs> because somebody didn't want to tell me in the moment who so it it we got it we do we the, we're not protecting people when we don't give them the opportunity right 
to be prepared and to find the resources that we are. And that is rooted oftentimes in our disbelief that our family is resilient. We are resilient people. And when we don't recognize how resilient we are, then we try, we think we're resilient. I'm gonna hold all this in because I'm resilient, but they can't know. No, we are resilient to help people. And when we can be more vulnerable in life, then being more vulnerable around death becomes easier. And so that's what I try to help people do. Be more vulnerable in life. Then we get to the dying part and, and we, don't, we don't necessarily need the bucket list because we're living right now. Right. We're saying the things right now. And so, yeah, David, it has been an awesome, amazing pleasure to have you, your beautiful, bright smile and the work that you do in this world on the podcast. Um, if, again, I know you said it earlier in the podcast, but if someone has heard something you said and they want to reach out and get in touch with you or find out how they can utilize uh, your services, how can they reach you? 513-372-2572 is how you can get in touch with me via cell phone and then email david.cope, C-O-P-E, at lwrdoula.com or www dot lwrdoula.com and the lwrs live without regrets Mm, nice so we'll obviously have all that contact um information in our show notes i really appreciate you being here today yes i want to give a special (laughs) shout out to trey angel who provides all the music for the labors of love podcast to my producer mr jay suck from instant classic media and of course you my listeners i love y'all um if you have suggestions for content or guest or if you want to be part of the labors of love newsletter head over to www.thelaborsoflove.com scroll down to the bottom of the welcome page and both of those things are there for you don't forget that we are on all the major social media outlets if you are not following me on tiktok what are you waiting for i mean y'all know i want to go over there but now that i'm over there y'all need to come on over okay don't forget that youtube has all of our therapy thursday videos and if you haven't given us the five-star rating on the podcast um you can do that right now actually just push pause i ain't gonna say nothing new give me that five-star rating write a review share with your loved ones and friends until we connect again you all be well.